This episode of Left Behind contains details of death that may be unsuitable for some audiences. A private fired a machine gun mounted to the back of a military vehicle as the vehicle rumbled out of Nichols Airfield just a few miles south of Manila. It was Christmas Day, 1941, but the men of Company C, 803rd Aviation Engineers Regiment, weren't celebrating with pyrotechnics. No, they were retreating against the quick advance of Japanese ground troops toward Manila. A convoy of Company C trucks, some carrying men, others laden with food and supplies or bulldozers or heavy equipment, was leaving Nichols Airfield where Company C had spent the last five months improving the runway. The machine gun fire hit a 55-gallon drum filled with gasoline, igniting it into flames. All around the private, engineers fired machine guns at additional drums, igniting the gasoline, which in turn caught buildings, machinery, and aircraft on fire. Some of those machine guns had just been salvaged from the planes they were now destroying. Among the burning buildings were bunkers filled with unused bombs, once intended for enemy targets. Now the bombs were being detonated on purpose to keep them from falling into enemy hands. Company C's convoy continued north along the road to Manila. Halt! A commanding voice yelled out. In response, one of the transport trucks stopped in front of an abandoned gas station. Servicemen jumped from the transport, while the rest of the convoy continued past the stopped truck. Find the gas tank inlets, the commander said. The men did so and ignited the station's supply of gasoline. Farther along the road, another transport did the same. The Americans would not be leaving any fuel to help Japanese forces continue this war. As the convoy pulled onto Manila's Dewey Boulevard, a main road that ran alongside the city's waterfront, the men enjoyed standard military rations for their Christmas dinner as they rode in the rumbling transport trucks. They continued through the city, and a couple of Company C's platoons split off from the main convoy. They had assignments to destroy large and important targets in Manila. The rest of Company C's trucks drove through the city and joined the long, slow-moving line of military vehicles evacuating the Philippines' capital as all U.S. forces on Luzon Island withdrew to the Bataan Peninsula. This is Left Behind. Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. This week's story is about Company C of the 803rd Aviation Engineer Regiment in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, as told through the experiences of four members of that company, Lieutenant James Caldwell, Private James Boer, Private Peter Laniauskas, and Sergeant Stanley Malore. These four men and the rest of the 803rd Aviation Engineers built runways, roads, and more to support the U.S. Far East Air Force. Typically, I like to have the POWs speak for themselves, meaning using their exact words whenever possible. 
I'm often lucky enough to find letters or journals or newspaper articles written by the POW or that include his quoted words. Sadly, though, I found only one instance of quoted words for these four POWs, and I couldn't find any pictures for any of them, so I don't know what they look like, and I don't have their firsthand experiences to share. But, using many sources, I have pieced together their lives and war experiences. So let's jump in. The story of Company C begins in Honolulu, Hawaii, in June 1941. 22-year-old Lieutenant James Caldwell and 24-year-old Private Peter Laniauskas were stationed there with the U.S. Corps of Engineers. Privates James Boer and Stanley Malore were likely there as well, but I have no specific evidence, so I can't say for certain. Private Peter Laniauskas had been in Hawaii with the engineers for at least a year, working on building military garrisons. The United States realized that the military airfields in the Philippines, especially Nichols Field just south of Manila, were in dire need of repairs and extensions. So, in June 1941, the Army created a new unit staffed by 166 men from the engineers in Hawaii, including Lieutenant Caldwell and Private Laniauskas, and probably Privates Buher and Malor. This new unit was officially called the 809th Engineer Aviation Separate Company, but within six months it would be Company C of the 803rd Aviation Engineers, so I'm going to always refer to this unit as Company C, just to keep things easier to follow. Lieutenant James Robert Caldwell became a platoon leader in Company C. The young officer was a Wisconsin native, born in April 1919 to parents who were Wisconsin natives as well. Caldwell's father was chief of Wisconsin's Corrections Division, and his father, so Lieutenant Caldwell's grandfather, was a former senator. I'm not certain whether state or U.S. senator. James Caldwell attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he majored in mechanical engineering and was part of the school's ROTC program. Shortly after graduation, he joined the U.S. Corps of Engineers and was stationed in Hawaii. Since this episode focuses on four men, I'm going to refer to him as Lieutenant Caldwell, the ROTC grad, in hopes that'll help keep things clearer in our minds as we go forward. Private Peter Laniauskas was born June 7, 1917, in Worcester, Massachusetts, to Lithuanian immigrants John and Helen Larnus. Sometimes this family's last name is recorded as Laniauski, sometimes as Laniauskas, sometimes as Larnus. It's very common to see Eastern European immigrants with a variety of last names throughout their lives, as they slowly assimilated into U.S. society. I think Larnus was their most Americanized name, and the one they gravitated toward in later years. Although interestingly, Peter seems to always go by the last name Laniauskas. Peter's father worked as a molder in a foundry to support his family of nine children. Peter was raised in Massachusetts, where he attended school through the 10th grade, which would have been around 1932. I don't know what he did for the next seven years, probably worked to help support his family since this was the middle of the Great Depression and he was one of nine children. A 22-year-old Peter enlisted in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in October 1939 and was in Hawaii by the next April, where he would stay for more than a year before being assigned to the newly formed Company C. I'll refer to him as Private Laniauskas the Engineer, since he seems to have had the most experience as a member of the Engineer Corps. 
In early July 1941, the ship SS President Taft picked up Private Laniaskis, Lieutenant Caldwell, and the rest of the 166 men of Company C and took them to Manila. The enlisted men were happy, even excited to leave Hawaii. Life on the island was, as one serviceman put it, like living on a rock and expensive. Okay, I get it. Hawaii is small and it is expensive, but still, it's Hawaii. Interesting side note, when my husband and I both worked for Ancestry.com, we spent two weeks in Honolulu photographing all the headstones at Punchbowl National Cemetery. We didn't even go swimming in the ocean. Still, I loved Hawaii. Anyway, the men of Company C arrived in Manila, Philippines on July 10, 1941, where they found caterpillar tractors, trailers, and graders, four-ton dump trucks, rock crushers, power shovels, and more airfield building equipment waiting for them. They were sent directly to Nichols Field, about 19 kilometers or 13 miles south of Manila Harbor. As I said earlier, I believe that our two other privates, Boer and Malor, were in Hawaii when Company C was formed. If not, they were certainly at Nichols Field with Company C in the last half of 1941. Both of these men came from difficult, poor family circumstances. Private James P. Booher was born in Ohio in 1920. He was the third child and eldest son of five siblings. It seems he was raised mainly by his mother because by the time James was nine, his father was in the Columbus State Hospital. That state hospital was a public psychiatric hospital. Just a note, if you ever come across someone who is living at a, quote, state hospital in the late 1800s or early 1900s, assume it's a psychiatric hospital and then Google it to find out details. You'll be surprised at what you find. I'm not sure if James's father was living at the hospital for psychiatric reasons or for health. He died there of tuberculosis in 1930 when James was 10. Back then there was no real cure for TB and patients were often sent to hospitals or sanatoriums to keep the diseases spread down. Coming of age in the 1930s in a fatherless home meant James had a front row seat to the devastation of the Great Depression. All the Boer children worked to support the family and James himself completed only three years of high school before, I assume, he had to join the workforce to help support his mother and younger siblings. By 1940, an almost 20-year-old James worked as a cook for the Civilian Conservation Corps. The CCC was a government works program in the 1930s that provided jobs for unemployed, single men ages 18 to 25, like James Boer, who struggled to find and keep work. James Boer enlisted as a private in the Army Corps of Engineers in February 1941. And I suspect he was quickly sent to Hawaii, where he was put into Company C by July 1941. I'll refer to him as Private Boer, whose father was in the state hospital. Now I know no one wants to be remembered for their parents' issues, but I think it's the easiest way to immediately identify Private Boer. Private Stanislaus Malor had a similarly difficult upbringing. I'm not completely certain how to pronounce his last name. It could be Malor or Malor. I'm going with Malor. He was born in December 1918 in Salem, Massachusetts to Polish immigrants. His father had died by the time he was 18 months old. His mother likely died before he was 11 because in 1930, Stanislaus was living with his uncle's family as their adopted son. 
His uncle worked at a shoe factory to support the family of seven children ages 14 down to three years old. The 14-year-old also worked in the shoe factory. Stanislaus completed just two years of high school, likely leaving to help support the family financially. That was probably around 1934 or 35, in the height of the Great Depression. He worked at a CCC camp in Marshfield, Vermont, where the men, who all came from western Massachusetts, constructed roads, a pond, picnic areas, campgrounds, and a ranger cabin. By April 1940, he was working as a domestic servant in a private home in Boston. That same month, he joined the U.S. Army and, I suspect, was sent to Hawaii. I'll refer to him as Private Malore, the Vermont CCC road builder. Now I want to pause here for a moment to point out the difference between the socioeconomic status of the three enlisted men and the one officer. Officers like ROTC grad Lieutenant Caldwell had college degrees and were part of ROTC groups or went to military schools. That means their families had enough money in the 1930s for them to attend school. Joining the army was a planned career choice. Enlisted men often came from families in a lower socioeconomic background. These enlisted men likely didn't have education beyond high school, and many times not even a full high school education. Notice that none of the three privates in this story finished high school. And this was especially true during the Great Depression, when so many future World War II soldiers were coming of age. Families needed their young men and women to help support them financially. And I suspect many enlisted in the U.S. Army for the money to help support their families, rather than as a career choice. Upon arriving at Nichols Field in July 1941, Company C got to work improving and expanded the Nichols Field runway. They also enjoyed the less confining life that Manila offered. A mechanic in another Air Force unit described Company C and Nichols Field. Engineers of the 809th worked, played, and drank hard. However, when war came, they became very serious. War came on December 8, 1941, mere hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. A couple weeks before the war started, the 166 men of Company C were incorporated into the 803rd Aviation Engineer Battalion, Army Corps of Engineers. So Privates Boer, Laniauskas, and Malor, and Lieutenant Caldwell all became official members of Company C 803rd Engineers. Company C was at Nichols Field when the war began. They experienced at least 11 Japanese air raids on the field between December 8th and December 24th, 1941. During the raids, the engineers would man machine guns and other artillery to fight off the air attacks. The bombs dropped during the attacks made huge craters in the airstrip that Company C had spent the last five months improving. So when the air raid was over, the Company C men returned to creating the runway and repairing the air raid damage. Some men of Company C salvaged 50 caliber machine guns from Nichols Field's damaged P-40 pursuit planes. Those 50 caliber machine guns augmented the company's cache of weapons, and they used them to fight off the air raids. On December 22, 1941, Japanese ground troops invaded the Philippines. Within a couple of days, they had pushed through U.S. and Filipino defenses to the point that General Douglas MacArthur implemented War Plan Orange. Let's step back for a moment. War Plan Orange was a U.S. military plan on how to handle possible war with Japan. This plan was in development as early as 1919, right after the end of World War I. 
By early 1941, War Plan Orange in the Philippines looked like this. U.S. and Filipino forces in the Philippines would focus their efforts on holding Manila Bay, with the surrounding Bataan Peninsula and Greater Manila Area, so that Japanese forces cannot access it. U.S. and Filipino ground troops would defend against Japanese ground landings. If Japanese forces prevailed, War Plan Orange called for U.S. forces to withdraw to Bataan Peninsula and defend it to the, quote, last extremity, close quote because the peninsula was key to controlling Manila Bay. But even in early 1941, the US military knew two drawbacks to this plan. One, it would take two years for the Pacific Fleet to fight its way across the Pacific to rescue or reinforce servicemen in the Philippines. And two, the army planners knew that they had only a six month supply of supplies, like food and ammunition and medicine. After that, without reinforcements, American forces under siege would fall. Okay, so that's a simplified version of War Plan Orange. Enter General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur assumed command of the U.S. forces, except for the Navy, in the Philippines in July 1941. And he didn't like War Plan Orange. It was defeatist, he thought. American and Filipino forces can do better than this, he thought. We can defend the entire Philippine coastline, he thought. So in summer 1941, MacArthur created a new war plan. MacArthur's war plan called for a coastal defense strategy. U.S. and Filipino ground troops and supplies would be dispersed to beachheads where they would defend against Japanese landings. MacArthur intended to use this strategy for the entire Philippines archipelago, meaning all the Philippine islands. Now, that's some 7,000 islands, which is ambitious. But he probably meant the U.S. forces could defend the five main islands. That seems more reasonable. Still, Luzon, the largest island, has around 3,000 miles of coastline. By comparison, the coastline of the continental U.S. west coast is 1,360 miles. So double that in your mind, and you've got a little less than Luzon's total coastline. MacArthur's war plan was probably an overly optimistic and overly aggressive plan. Other military officials thought it wasn't realistic, but MacArthur persuaded Washington, D.C. to approve it, and he set about increasing the number of U.S. forces on the Philippine Islands throughout the rest of 1941. Well, until the Japanese started to tuck in the Philippines on December 8th, that is. And then, he seems to have done little to nothing to implement his war plan. Because when Japanese forces invaded Luzon on December 22nd, two weeks after their first airstrikes on the island, they were met only by undertrained and underarmed Filipino forces who were easily overrun. The main U.S. forces that were intended to fight back that invasion were still on their way to the coastal landing area when the Japanese landed. Um, insert face palm emoji here. Well, the successful Japanese landings and invasion on December 22, 1941, threw off MacArthur's war plan. So he reinstated War Plan Orange, which you'll recall planned for all U.S. forces to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula to keep control of Manila Bay. Thus, on December 24, 1941, just two days after the Japanese invasion army landed, MacArthur ordered all U.S. forces on Luzon to retreat to the Bataan Peninsula, 
That order included Lieutenant Caldwell and Privates Boer, Lanialskis, and Malor, and the rest of Company C of the 803rd Aviation Engineers. Company C loaded its heavy trucks with supplies and construction equipment and headed for Bataan. They destroyed gasoline supplies, bunkers of bombs, and other equipment they didn't want to fall into enemy hands. Lieutenant Caldwell, the ROTC grad, rode ahead of the large convoy in a military car. It's possible he was also able to stop at an officer's club along the way for a decent Christmas dinner. While Company C was retreating to Bataan, back in the States, Americans tuned in to watch the White House's Christmas tree lighting ceremony. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill addressed Americans. Fellow workers, fellow soldiers in the cause, this is a strange Christmas Eve. Almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle. Armed with the most terrible weapons which science can devise, the nations advance upon each other. Ill would it be for us this Christmas died if we were not sure that no greed for the lands or wealth of any other people, no vulgar ambition, no morbid lust for material gain at the expense of others had led us to the field. Ill would it be for us if that were so. Here in the midst of war, raging and roaring over all the lands and seas, creeping nearer to our hearths and homes, here amid all these tumults, we have tonight the peace of the spirit in each cottage home and in every generous heart. Therefore, we may cast aside, for this night at least, the cares and dangers which beset us, and make for the children uh, an evening of happiness in a world of storm. Here then, for one night only, each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let us, grown-ups, share to the full in their unstinted pleasures. Before we turn again to the stern task and formidable year that lie before us, resolve that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance or denied their right to live in a free and decent world. And so, and so, in God's mercy, a happy Christmas to you all.
On their way through Manila, Privates Boer, Laniaskis, and Malor, and the other enlisted men of Company C ate their Christmas dinner rations in their transport trucks. The convoy stopped at gas stations to blow up gasoline reserves. It was an explosive Christmas, to say the least. To retreat from Nichols Field, Company C's trucks had to go all the way around Manila Bay, which separated them from the Bataan Peninsula. Imagine Manila Bay as a teardrop shape. Nichols Field and Manila are on the right side of the fullest part of that teardrop. Bataan is on the direct opposite side of that fullest point. The bay narrows into marshes and lagoons in the north, so that would be the thin, pointy part of the teardrop. The Company C convoy had to drive about 43 miles or 70 kilometers northwest from Manila to San Fernando at the top of the teardrop. Then they turned sharply south and west to drive down about 53 miles or 85 kilometers into the Bataan Peninsula. So that would be going down toward the fullest part of the opposite side of the teardrop from Manila. Their destinations were the small Kakaban and Bataan airfields on the southeastern shore of the Bataan Peninsula. Most of Company C had left Manila by December 26th. A couple platoons of Company C men, and I'm not certain if any of our privates were part of these groups, went into Manila to destroy airstrips, large oil reserves, and other specific targets. I've put some pictures of the burning oil reserves on my website. You can find the link in the show description. The last of these Company C platoons left Manila on January 1st. These men crossed over the Column Pit Bridge while another group of U.S. engineers were placing explosive charges on it. The Column Pit Bridge spanned a large river along the road from Manila to the Bataan Peninsula. U.S. engineers demolished the bridge during the U.S. retreat from Manila to impede the progress of Japanese forces. But it also meant that any U.S. forces still in Manila were cut off from Bataan. The one exception was by water across the Manila Bay to Bataan, but by the last days of December 1941, there were few if any boats left in Manila to take any U.S. forces remnants to Bataan. And next week, I'm gonna talk about some men who were stranded in Manila. Once on Bataan, Company C was charged with improving the small Kakaban and Bataan airfields for what remained of the almost completely destroyed U.S. Air Forces in the Philippines. They also worked to improve roads around the airfields. On January 15, 1942, Lieutenant Caldwell, the ROTC graduate, and three other lieutenants were inspecting repair work on Bataan Airfield. At noon, several Japanese dive bombers began bombing and strafing the field. The four men ran for cover. Three of them made it out of the plane's sights, but 23-year-old Lieutenant Caldwell didn't. He was killed in action just five weeks into World War II and only about 18 months into his army officer career. He had been recommended for a promotion just the day before. Lieutenant James Caldwell was buried at the west end of the Bataan Field runway. But his grave must have been unmarked or a mass grave because his remains could not be accounted for at war's end. His body was considered unrecoverable, and his name appears today on the tablets of the missing monument at the Manila American Cemetery. He was survived by his mother, father, and a younger brother. And he was one of only two Company C men killed during the Battle of Bataan, which lasted from January through early April 1942. 
A little over three months after withdrawing, U.S. forces on Bataan surrendered to the Japanese on April 9, 1942. The men of Company C were sick, hungry, and exhausted. Morale among the men had steadily grown worse as the months on Bataan lengthened and it became increasingly obvious that the United States was abandoning the men on Bataan. In other words, wasn't going to send the promised and hoped for reinforcements. You'll recall that in early 1941, U.S. military officials estimated it would take two years for the U.S. to get ships across the Pacific to reinforce the Philippine troops, and that forces in the Philippines probably had only six months of supplies. That estimate was generous. Private James Booher, whose father was in the Ohio State Hospital, was five foot nine inches and weighed 140 pounds when he enlisted in the army in February 1941. He probably lost at least 15 pounds while on Bataan. Company C had been on half rations since arriving on Bataan. That's roughly 1,850 calories per day. And that was cut in half again on March 15th, so they had around 900 calories per day. That's equivalent to about four and a half cups of cooked white rice per day for working, fighting soldiers. They were able to supplement those rations with cashews growing in the area, but of course, cashew shells are toxic, so they had to be extremely careful when consuming. By the time of surrender, the men were basically starving. A private recalled, We had no food at all and were hungrier than ever. We were continuing to grow weaker a sick and emaciated Private Booher was forced with the rest of Company C on the nearly 70-mile Bataan Death March, which ended at Camp O'Donnell. Disease ran rampant there. Water was scarce. During May 1942, about 40 American servicemen died at Camp O'Donnell every day. 22-year-old Private James Booher was among them. He passed away on May 23, 1942. He left behind his mother and four siblings. He was buried with some 1,500 other U.S. servicemen in the cemetery just outside of camp. After the war, his remains were identified and reburied at the Manila American Cemetery. Approximately 27 men of Company C died on the Bataan Death March or at Camp O'Donnell. That's about 16% of the entire company. Privates Peter Laniauskas and Stanley Malore and the remaining members of Company C, now about 130 men, were transferred from Camp O'Donnell to the Cabanatuan POW camps with the rest of the American POWs in late June 1941. The Bataan survivors were all in very poor condition. In addition to exhaustion and starvation, they faced tropical diseases like malaria and beriberi. POWs died at Cabanatuan at an astonishing rate. Opened in June 1942, Cabanatuan saw its first no-death day six months later in December 1942. But the fact that Cabanatuan was a permanent POW camp meant that the POWs could create organization systems, including hospital wards, to try to improve the POW situations. Private Peter Laniauskas, the engineer from Massachusetts, entered the Cabanatuan Camp No. 1 Hospital Ward as a mental patient sometime in fall 1942. And, tragically, that would be the last place he stayed at Cabanatuan. Major Peter Pisic, who I highlighted in Episode 1, wrote in the Cabanatuan Camp Diary that, 
Laniauskas Peter, Private, was shot to death while attempting to escape from hospital area, Camp Number 1, night of November 15th to 16th, 1942. The Kabanatuan Daily Log, which is a different record, questions the escape attempt, noting that, quote, the bullet wounds entered the man's stomach and came out the back. Escape? That last word, escape, is followed by three question marks, suggesting, to me at least, that if Private Laniauskas was trying to escape, why were the entry wounds in his stomach, i.e. the front of his body? The truth is, we don't know what Private Laniauskas was doing. Perhaps he had a further mental break, couldn't stand imprisonment any longer, and just ran for it. Perhaps he just got too close to the camp's perimeter. Japanese sentries shot POWs who came too near the camp fences. Regardless, two other enlisted men were tried by the Japanese camp commanders for the, quote, responsibility of Peter Laniauskas attempted escape, close quote. One received 20 days in solitary confinement. The other, who was also a mental patient at the hospital ward, received 30 days confinement. Private Laniauskas was buried in one of Kabanatuan Camp 1's mass graves. His body cannot be specifically identified after the war, and he is probably among the nearly 1,000 POWs whose bodies were reinterred at the Manila American Cemetery in graves marked unknown. 90 Company C POWs died while imprisoned at Kabanatuan or at other Japanese POW camps. That is 54% of Company C men who died after reaching Kabanatuan. For our story today, that leaves just Private Stanley Malore, the Vermont CCC road builder. Private Malore remained at Kabanatuan while all other living members of Company C were transferred to POW work camps in Japan and Asia. At its height, Kabanatuan Camp 1 had some 8,000 men in it. By October 1944, that number had reduced through death and prisoner transfers to about 2,000. In late October 1944, the Japanese transferred about 1,500 POWs out of Kabanatuan. Included in that transfer were Major Peter Pysak and Chaplain Ralph Brown, who I talked about in Episodes 1 and 3. 511 POWs remained at Kabanatuan. The vast majority, probably including 26-year-old Private Malor, were too sick to be useful at work camps in Japan. And that sickness likely saved Malor's life, because only about 550 of those 1,500 or so transferred POWs actually reached Japan alive. With Kabanatuan camp reduced in numbers, Private Malor became reacquainted with an old friend, a Catholic chaplain whom Malor had known in the late 1930s. I remember meeting you when you were chaplain at the CCC camp in Marshfield, Vermont. Malore told the man in the end of 1944. Remember how I said I had only one direct quote from the four men I've highlighted in this episode? Well, that was it. And although it doesn't add much to the story, I had to include what little of Private Malore's own words that I have access to. As 1944 turned into 1945, the Japanese guarded Kabanatuan less and less. The war was turning against the Japanese, and U.S. forces had successfully returned to the Philippines. In response, Japanese forces began killing American POWs at other Philippine camps in mass. Worried that mass executions could happen to the 511 sick POWs remaining at Kabanatuan, 
U.S. Rangers and Filipino guerrillas mounted a rescue mission behind enemy lines on the night of January 30th to 31st, 1945 to liberate Kabanatuan. Private Malor and my own great-grandfather Al-Masam were both at the camp on January 30th when, at 7.40 p.m., just after sunset, the camp erupted with gunfire. Al-Masam recorded in his memoir, read here by his great-grandson. At the first burst of gunfire, we instinctively dropped flat to the ground. For a few uncomfortable moments, we were almost certain that this was it, that the Japs had commenced a systematic extermination of all of us with machine guns and rifle fire. Pandemonium reigned for about 20 minutes, and then the sound of shouting voices, and almighty God, they were all speaking English. I'm an American. Get the hell to the main gate on the double, a commanding voice rang out in the night. Almasam further recalled, Gradual realization that we were being delivered at long last by these new bred warriors dawned within us, and we stepped snappily along, regardless of aching beriberi feed, and other ailments that had beset and afflicted so many for so long. The rescued men had each lost, on average, 60 pounds during their imprisonment, some as much as 100 pounds. They marched and were carted and carried about 30 miles or 50 kilometers to safety behind American lines. When offered a ride in a cart, one POW remarked, I made the death march from Bataan, so I can certainly make this one. Finally, after two years and 10 months of captivity, 26-year-old Private Stanley Malore was no longer left behind. In the coming days, he and the rescued POWs got food, including bacon, real beds, new clothing, and medicine. They returned to the United States, where they recuperated at military hospitals and eventually returned home. Malore was one of only 38 Company C men of the original 166 to return home after the war. That means that only 23% of the company came home. 77% of Company C men died in battle or as prisoners of war. And notice that the whole company statistics correspond to the four men we've talked about today. Only one of the four made it home. Stanley Malore returned to his uncle's household in Salem, Massachusetts, and was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army in March 1946. In the early 1950s, he married Eileen Crossman, a divorcee with one daughter. They settled in Beverly, Massachusetts, and together had two children. By 1965, Stanley Malore owned his own donut store, aptly named Stan's Donut Shop. He died of natural causes on November 28, 1980. He was almost 62 years old and was buried in the Salem, Massachusetts Cemetery. Way back in December 1941, Private Malore and the rest of Company C escaped Manila and the invading Japanese army, only to be trapped and left behind on Bataan. Some U.S. servicemen, however, never escaped from Manila. They were left behind enemy lines way before American forces ever surrendered. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Caldwell, Boer, Laniaskis, and Malor on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more about Company C of the 803rd Engineers, I suggest the book, Good Outfit by Paul W. Ropp. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is research, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. I'll be back next week with the Navy men left behind when Japanese took over Manila. Thank you.